0: Hello and welcome back to Rounding the Earth and today um, I have the pleasure to introduce my friend um, author, physician, engineer, uh, Dr. Madhava Seti, who has been with um, uh, Children's Health Defense and uh, recently started uh, a Substack stack uh, known as an insult to intuition. And he has uh, gone on a kind of an interesting adventure today that we'll talk about. Welcome, Dr. Seti. How are you?
1: Hi, Matthew. Yeah, I'm well. Good to see you. Always great to talk to you.
0: So recently, you went on. Uh, uh, you called the, uh, into the belly of the beast, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that there are going to be a lot of people who want to know what the krill smells like. <laughs> so, um, tell you know where where was this uh, adventure that you went on?
1: It it was the World Vaccine Congress, uh, the 23rd uh, meeting of them, and it was in the it was in Washington D.C., um, April 3rd through the 7th. And um, my trip down there was, you know, funded by Children's Health Defense, um, and I went with another physician, uh, pediatrician, uh, Elizabeth Mumper, and, you know, we were sent down there just to to smell around, like you said, what does the krill smell like down there? And it, it turned out to be a very, very interesting interaction, because honestly, three years into this, nobody has been able to, like, look face-to-face with one of the movers and shakers on the inside and ask them a direct question that hasn't happened and suddenly we found ourselves in that opportunity and you know the the responses were quite stunning
0: so while you're there do people know that you're uh in a sense um i don't want to say the opposition but not part of the inside you know asking these questions
1: well sadly no i don't have that kind of uh you know, online personality or presence. I mean, people didn't know who I was uh, for sure. And, you know, that was an asset. And probably why I was sent down instead of someone like Meryl Nass or, you know, uh, other physicians, physician colleagues that I know. So it was an opportunity to um, I don't want to call it infiltration, but it it was in a way. It is a great way to understand.
0: Uh, One of the ways I felt like I
1: learned uh, the most
0: in life. And I, I, I realized this when I moved to Manhattan. And uh, right around the time I turned 21 years old, uh, I got into the habit of maybe once a week just sitting down at at the bar of a restaurant to eat Mm -hmm. and just, you know, being willing to listen to anybody's story. Mm You know, it's like you hear things that you would never otherwise hear. Um, You're not adversarial. If you're just listening, if you're not judging um, and, and suddenly you find out, you know, what what something really looks like that you would have had no idea about that you may never have have discovered. So what is the people, you know, talked about as they walked around this convention?
1: It was first of all, we have to understand who was there. There weren't a lot of uh, physicians in clinical practice at the time. You know, there were physicians who became researchers, but mainly it was um, you know, tech people, people who worked for the, the vaccine industry and their offshoots. There were all sorts of um, displays, exhibitions um, by, you know, companies who profited or earned their money from, you know, like vaccine trials. Like there was companies that recruited patients. There were companies that were, uh, you know, making new technology like um, uh, needles that would be absorbed so you could, you know, tell your... Your uh, participants, it wouldn't be a whole lot of injections. It was just like this tiny little thing, and then it would dissolve. And um, uh, so, all sorts of industries that branch off of uh, the vaccine and big pharma industry. So these were tech people, um, and and there were a lot of scientists, you know, like basic bench scientists there. So you know, to answer your question, what was it like? First of all, you you, you walk in there and you realize that these people are pretty well funded. You know what I mean? This, uh, this conference center probably uh, cost several hundred thousand dollars a day and um, and people were well healed. Not unexpectedly, this is what we were expecting, right? <clears throat> um, and it, it took a while to get comfortable because we realized, like, this is, this is you know, what's really interesting is to be inside um, an area where you're pretty certain that 99% of the people there completely disagree with one of the biggest issues that you have and you know how do you open your mouth like what's the first thing you say to these people right because um, you know where they stand so that's um, that that's what the people were like but as as the you know the week progressed I, I had more and more interactions with um, not necessarily the presenters but people in the audience and um, you know to just lay it out there they' They are um, open to the idea that they could be wrong. And um, every single time I ask a question, and we can talk about that later, it, you know, people would come up to me afterwards and say, wow, that was a really good question. Why didn't they answer it? You know, so it, it's hopeful. I, yeah.
0: Pardon you. Uh, it's good to hear that um, that the number of people who are open minded seems to be substantial, especially at an event like that, right? Uh, you wouldn't necessarily uh, expect as much open mindedness, but then again, I guess I don't know who the audience is. You know, who the crowd is. Like, um, mm-hmm. is this uh, is is that media people in the audience? Is it um, is there partially like a sales job going on with this conference? What you know, who who is there?
1: Well, beyond the uh, uh, the the people who were running the exhibits um, and the scientists, uh, there were some media people there. You know, I, I wrote this piece on my Substack just a few days ago and it, it got a lot of play. And people have reached out to me saying that they tried to get in um, as a media person, but they were rejected. Um, so there was undoubtedly media people there. And in fact, in one of the plenary sessions, uh, there were spokespeople from um, MSNBC, and um the scientific american and uh another uh, the washington post these were like reporters that were on stage and talking about how difficult it was to get the story right so there were obviously uh, media people there but it was like walking into you've probably been at a conference like this a scientific meeting or a uh a, con- a conference uh, put on by an industry where everybody is you know looking to network as opposed to you know, tell us what the latest trial data shows. That's not what they were there for. However, you know, th- the thing is is that it- at each one of these um, round tables or uh, presentations, there was an opportunity to ask questions. and I, I took every opportunity to steer uh, you know the-, the discussion in a, in a certain direction. And um, the, the entire symposium uh, opened um, on a Tuesday. There was 3,100 people there. And uh, Gregory Poland, who uh, maybe your viewers know is the head of uh, vaccine research at the Mayo Clinic, chaired the opening and closing plenary sessions. And he's a very interesting character. Um, he happens to be uh, a, a pastor and um the tone of his and he was sermonizing honestly i mean like it was actually like walking into a place of worship um retrospectively when i look at it because he was laying down you know what the tenets of the philosophy are which were number one um millions of people have died of of covid no that's axiom number one the uh The vaccines have saved millions and millions of lives. I'm not, I mean, these are actual statements that he made. The regulatory agencies like the FDA and the CDC have done a stellar job in making sure that these products made it to the public as soon as possible. And the biggest challenge we have now is the vaccine hesitant. And, you know, he just dropped it all there like, okay,
0: Right, jump past all debate and just you know conclusion, and and just push conclusions and repeat them. Um, it it feels like uh it feels like a tactic for mind control essentially, like brainwashing. Uh, I've started actually ca- uh, calling this uh, governance by aggressive nonsensical guruism.
1: Government by nonsensical yeah aggressive
0: nonsensical guruism. yeah Mm -hmm. um and and i i think that it that it has been shown to work effectively i think that it it is a technique that was studied and practiced over a period of years and Mm -hmm. i think that that is part of what you know all of this is and that um there are probably people who have a sense of it but just wouldn't know that that type of planning of messaging went on even i agree um, so one of the things that you mention is uh, in your article is that there are calls for public-private partnership, and you know I, I hear this messaging right. I haven't like looked too deeply into it myself. I've been focused on other things. But um, tell us, tell us what that sounded like, or what does that represent? How do people explain public-private partnership?
1: Well, obviously in this forum, it was considered to be an amazing breakthrough, like we're finally cooperating and this will allow us to uh, move at a greater pace with, uh, you know, our, their objectives and, you know, to, to be, to look at it more clearly, I would have to say if that, if that, this was truly a free society, like a true democracy with um, a free press that held tyranny in check, that would be, you know, reasonable, like what a good idea. But we don't have that right i mean we all know that that's not what's going on and so this to me is just um a way it's a, a euphemism for fascism you know that's one way of looking at it when, when you have um that sort of partnership you know you, you have government controlling industry and you have communism you have industry controlling government and you have uh fascism and you know both are totalitarian in the end so they were hinting at that but obviously people in in, in attendance didn't see it that way at all Um,
0: yeah yeah i i guess i I describe fascism slightly differently i don't know if it's necessarily the corporations have control of government but i think public-private partnership actually really does kind of strike at fascism better than any other phrase that i've heard Mm -hmm. Um, but you know when you say public and private you know those words like individually they sound so good you know but it's not like chocolate and peanut butter (laughs) it's, it's uh, you know, these things that aren't supposed to mix Uh, almost by definition, they're not supposed to mix. Um, But I, I, I've worried that there's something um, else going on, which is that, you know, the department, the department of defense has been so intertwined with uh, with the pharmaceutical industry during the past three years. And I'm going to say three years plus, because I think that there was, you know, a lot of work going on ahead of time. In fact, we know there was, Um, but you know, both industries I think needed a dance partner, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, There's an article that I had found. uh, I I put it in multiple of my own articles, uh, my Substack, over the past two years, but um, it showed that the rate of uh, like the, the return on investment of, of uh, R and D in the pharmaceutical industry was hitting zero in 2020. That was the mm-hmm. trajectory of ROI in the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm not sure what all reasons go into that. Um, it may just be, you know, you, you get cert- certain low-hanging fruit. Um, it may be that the more things have a treatment for them, the you know, the more you have to spend large amounts of money for uh, illnesses that don't have many patients, Right. Perhaps. And and of course, you know, there's all the things that have gone on in the healthcare industry that just make it more expensive, um, you know, uh, insurance and and malpractice suits and all those sorts of things. And Mm -hmm. I would say I would say the pressure on doctors, too. I think that medical school and and residency is kind of its own mess. But, you know, jumping past that, Um, the pharmaceutical industry really did look like it was in long term trouble in a lot of ways.
1: I find that astounding. Uh, you know, I'm interested to know more about that. I would have never thought that that kind of um, industry was uh, in—I don't want to say dire straits, but on a trajectory to zero. That doesn't. Uh... And it may be that um, that uh, the you know, the
0: globalization hit certain parts of that industry also, right? When uh, you know, ninety-something percent of antibiotic production gets shifted to China, for instance. Mm. You know, it's hard to know exactly what effect those sorts of moves have. You know, I, I, I don't know exactly how the industry is organized. So what does that do to Merck? What does that do to Pfizer? You know, don't, don't know exactly, but, but there are a lot of factors involved. Generally, profit goes hand in hand with new technology, right? Mm-hmm. New technology is the, the primary driver of, you know, localized profits on a timescale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on top of that, you have the DOD. You know, and we've had sort of like decades of let's call it domestic peace in the sense that um, we haven't really felt threatened. You know, we we don't have easy borders to invade. We have two giant oceans on our east and west and Canada to our north. Right. And, yeah. you know, whatever people say on the news about, um, you know, migrants coming from the south being an invasion. It's not as if we fear, you know, an actual, you know, uh, like, you know, army coming over. Um mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a it's a different kind of, um, you know, local problem or, you know, job struggle or competition or something. Right. Um, but it, it's not quite the same thing. But the DOD wants more and more money every year. And so if you have these two industries that both sort of have a need uh, to have, you know, either a problem to solve or like a villain to go after. Right. I mean, does you know, the DOD would rather have something like an invisible enemy than yes. to actually go confront face to face, you know, Russia in a war or something like that. You know, nobody wants to open up nuclear cans. Nobody, you know, that, there's a lot of reasons why the DOD would be real happy with an invisible enemy. And Absolutely. so, yeah. you know, you have this possibility of a dance partner. And people aren't I think people aren't uh, stepping back and questioning that skeptically. But that's a place where fascism could grow, even if it was not intended to be that way. You know
1: what I mean? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, everything I agree with everything you're saying, and you know, you're opening up another incredible conversation to have about you know this. Uh, obviously, the best friend to a uh, military-industrial complex person uh, would be an enemy. Uh, the best friends to the pharmaceutical industry would be disease and, you know, the best friends to a central banker would be, you know, the need for debt. I mean, l- let's be real here. That's, that's kind of what's going on. Right. I think we, we all should sort of understand if we don't, you know, know it with hundred percent certainty, that's what I put my money on. And, you know, Matthew, I know that you're very, very, um, reluctant to ever claim certainty. Um, and, uh, but that that's what's going on. Um, that's, that's the way I'm living my life. That's the way I see it completely. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't know where to go from here. We could talk about a lot of different things, but uh,
0: yeah. And and just to be clear, I, I do live as if I, as if I believe something with certainty, even when I put a, a probability on it and you're right, I, I try not to claim certainty very often. Well, it's, um,
1: wise. it's smart. <laughs> it's smart not to claim certainty, honestly. I mean, you know, one of the big struggles we have right now is our need for certainty. We could, If both sides would just admit that they can't be sure then we can actually have a, a conversation and you know that's part of why it was interesting to go into this particular um symposium to see how sure these people were about what they what they not only what they believed in but you know about their their whole uh lifeline of you know earnings what they did for their careers and um they're not sure i mean the people on the stages were but everyone else in the audience I, I think they know. And I had a very interesting conversation with someone who approached um, one of our uh, people on the ground who was handing out flyers outside of the symposium. And, you know, this person um, came up to uh, one of our our chapter members at, at, in Virginia uh, who was handing out flyers and said, you know, thank you for what you're doing. And, you know, by the way, half the people in there are not vaccinated. And um, I was able to track this person down and they were willing to have a conversation with me, you know, um, uh, off the record. And I said, really, is that really true? Like people in there didn't get the jab. And this person said, well, I was exaggerating, but there is a, um, a small minority or there was a minority that um, was able to evade the uh, vaccination campaign. But she said, there was a, um, Is she talking about the
0: press or like the scientists and technology?
1: She was was an MD. They were an MD, PhD, um, working for the industry. And what they said was that, uh, most of their colleagues realized that when they got the jab, that they were going to be part of an experiment and they were being, they were the Guinea pigs, but they went along. And this person's position on it was that they were very certain that safety has not been demonstrated by their standards. Um, you know, they didn't go into all of the you know uh, the damage and the the number of ca- uh, casualties that have arisen from this vaccine campaign. But when it comes to safety, they knew very well that uh, these things have not been proven safe, which I thought was very enlightening.
0: Yeah, it, it, um, I, I At some point, I stopped keeping track before my Substack really took off when I had like, you know, 800, 900 readers. Um, I, I would watch, you know, each few names every day come in and mm-hmm. I would notice a lot of, you know names with doctor at the front, you know, on their email address or, or this or that. But also, um, I just took the time every now and then to just, you know, Google, who's this person? Who's this person? So mm-hmm. I was just curious, like, what sort of an audience am I getting? And one, and one of the things that I realized was, oh, fully half of my first 900 or so readers were either physicians or professional scientists.
1: That's encouraging.
0: And it, it, it did feel encouraging. In fact, Um, you know, a lot of the feedback that I got um, seemed to be confirmed. Uh, I saw statistics at some point that showed that of of each educational status, you know, didn't finish high school, finish high school, got a bachelor's degree, got an advanced degree. PhDs are the most vaccine hesitant class. Yep. Um, You know, those are the people. And, and, You know, the most vaccinated, though, are just are the step below them, the people with master with uh, bachelor's degrees. Right. right? Uh, I went to college and, you know, I can I can think through this problem. But wait, you know, the Ph.D.s are are exactly the opposite. So what does that tell us? And, uh, you know, I, I think it it tells me that those are people who are most, you know, head first confronting these industries. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, they they know how the sausage is made uh they're they're more likely to think things through and i think also they're more likely to keep you know their their professional life and their and their private choices perhaps uh separate enough you know they know the the politics and the landscape um i don't know you know and of course you don't have to say anything but i've had approximately eight conversations with people who either they or their child got a fake vaccine card mm-hmm and half of those people were PhDs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. Um, I, I that makes sense to me. And it um, it it's it could be more than just uh, knowing how the sausage is made. I would suggest that uh, it has some bearing on what we just talked about with uncertainty. You know, I would suggest that PhDs know the difference between believing and knowing. Um, and the, the ones that don't have the, the higher education, and, you know, I'm just generalizing, um, they don't, they've been believing their whole lives. Um, you know, one thing that I, I talk about a lot was um, in terms of knowing versus believing, which is, I think, a very important aspect of what's happening in our planet right now, um, is, you know, about a decade ago, the National Science Foundation surveyed the American public and one of the questions they asked was, do you think the sun goes around the earth or do you think the earth goes around the sun? And of course, embarrassingly, one out of four people in this country got it wrong. They think the sun goes around the earth. And the rest of us are like, oh my gosh, you know, how, how could you not know this fact that we've established 500 years ago? But if you ask the other 75%, how do they know? How do you know? And um, I would suggest that most people don't know. They, they believe. They just happen to believe the right things. But when it comes right down to it, it doesn't matter if it's 2023 or the year 1023, you can't go outside and look up at the sky and know what's going on. It is very, very difficult to tell. But the point here is once you understand how we've come to, to, to knowing that now you actually know you don't believe and um that's something that may be reserved for the people who really do serious investigation to things and, and realize that there is always uncertainty, especially with science. Um, you know, which makes this whole you know mandated vaccine thing even more um, egregious, uh, because we are violating some major major standards of ethical medical practice when we cannot inform patients what is in the jab. There is no ingredient list. How can you possibly inform someone? So, yeah, that's an interesting um, uh, uh, statistic about that.
0: Yeah, in fact, um, that, whole, that whole thing of uh, not knowing why you know something, right? When you think you know something and not knowing why you know it, um, that's a lot of the reason I named this program uh, and, and my substack, rounding the Earth, mm-hmm. uh, right? Because, uh, you know, the, the fact that a flat earth movement could exist, which I, I personally think is probably some sort of, like a, an intelligence study operation.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Right. And, and, and my, my gut feeling is we've seen several versions of it during this, you know, pandemonium. Uh, I personally think that the, that the no virus people um, are something like that. In fact, I've met a person who admitted to me that in 2020 she organized those people mm-hmm. uh, in meetings to get on message together. And yeah. I know a close friend of hers that uh, I, I'm, uh, have pretty good uh, reason to believe is herself an agent. So mm-hmm. um, you know, when I see this, I think uh, you know we're constantly being studied, but now we're being studied for massive event uh, controls of mimetic behavior, right? Mm-hmm. And and I, I I'm curious, like to to know you know uh, how much you know how much of that mimetic behavior and how much of that sort of belief control is actually targeted at the people at the vaccine conference like the people doing the technology mm-hmm. who are involved in the science right like if yeah. you if you were to focus your if you were to focus um, a lot of time and energy running something like psychological operations would those be the people the target just constantly blasting and making them making them think that any question that they asked was sort of crazy.
1: No, one hundred percent, Matthew. I, I, you know, that was my conclusion: was that this this kind of sermonizing was not meant for the vaccine hesitant. It was meant for the people there to make sure that they were in line and they weren't questioning what was going on. Um, uh, primarily because you know, y- y- you know, Gregory Poland, which which is an interesting. L- let's go back to the first plenary session, for example, because Gregory Poland. This might be a good time to. Uh, flash up who he is. Um, he, um, he he was the guy who was the the pastor and uh, a- and the head of vaccine research at the Mayo Clinic. But interestingly, uh, a year ago, he came forward as being vaccine injured. And um, as he was uh, um, talking about how amazingly safe and uh, uh, effective these vaccines were, I was under the impression that he had recovered. And what happened to him was after a second dose of an MRNA vaccine, he developed tinnitus. Um, and he described it at the time as, um, how do you say, extraordinarily bothersome. That's what he said a year ago. And he pulled together a couple of scientists, like a, uh, a researcher and I think uh, an ENT specialist to talk about, you know, what, to, what needs to be done and how uh, certain they could be that this was a causative reaction. And to my understanding, he understood that it was absolutely from the vaccine. Nevertheless, he decided to get a, uh, a booster. At, at, and at the time, it was the, the monovalent booster. And what he said was for 24 hours, the um, the tinnitus, tinnitus, by the way, is ringing ears. And it yeah, can, it yeah. the entire- I've
0: spectrum. actually been suffering from it lately for the first time. Oh. Uh, in, in my life. So I, I, I know a little bit of, about this now.
1: So, yeah, it, it can be, you know, barely uh, detected in your experience or it can be, as he says, uh, extraordinarily bothersome. So in any case, he, he got the, the booster and it went away for 24 hours and then it returned at a higher pitch. And so it became a little less uh, bothersome is w- what he said. Anyway, at the end of the entire symposium, I approached him um, to, you know, see what was going on with him, whether or not he recovered. And he said, no, it's still un- it, it's disrupted his life, which, you know, which points to the hypocrisy of his initial statements um, when he opened up the symposium. This is someone who is vaccine injured, telling everyone that this is the best thing since sliced bread. Um so I, that's that's where that's how it started and um anyway in, in this particular session uh on stage was peter marks who is uh, the head of CBER at the fda sits on the verpack um a big voice in this and he made some uh really interesting statements and the first thing he said was that he has um He's no longer interested I wish I could quote him directly um, I'm no longer interested in arguing with someone who believes that vaccines aren't safe now um, I I, you know what to make of this this is someone who's supposed to be on the the regulatory board right to make sure they're safe and he doesn't want to hear an argument from someone who has an opposing opinion so I found that to be very disquieting to say the least. Moreover, and, and here, let's be very clear. Maybe he's sort of signaling to the crowd that, look, even I, Peter Marks, know that these things are safe. Let's be real. The other thing he mentioned was that uh, he's given up on the idea of a sterilizing vaccine. He, he's like, that, that's, it may be possible in the future, but against COVID, no way. He's not expecting that ever to happen. And by sterilizing, I'm talking about preventing infection and transmission. Right. Um, and what he's saying is that we, all we need is something that can prevent symptoms or um, mitigate them, you know, essentially a medical therapy at this point. And he was, he was flanked by um, someone from Moderna and uh, J&J, and he was saying, look, what we want to do is be able to um, identify the strain that we want to target in June and deploy it in September. And this can be possible as long as manufacturing capacity is ready to go. And sure enough, his, um, you know, the, the people in the industry nodded their head. And, yeah, we're ready to go, Peter. You know, just tell us what to do and we're going to make it happen. And, and the point here is that a hundred day turnaround leaves no room for actual testing um, on any scale whatsoever. It's They're basically looking to forego all of the uh, safety testing uh, on human beings, um, with the uh, assumption that we've that they've already tested the mRNA platform, it's been proven safe, and so all we need to do now is just, you know, give us the genetic sequence, and we are going to uh, throw them in vials and um, deploy them. So- you
0: know, that reminds me. I think one of the reasons why I was skeptical of the vaccines from the start, aside from the fact that. Um- I, I caught on to the hydroxychloroquine story and I, I don't know if it was the very end of February onward, I started following um, Dr. Didier Reel's work mm-hmm. in France and, mm-hmm. uh, and kept track of from there, you know, all of the hydroxychloroquine statistics that I could find and I could see just clear shenanigans, mm-hmm. um, you know, going on around that topic. Um, aside from that, there was like two, three, for two, three years before the pandemic, I was hearing a disturbing amount of discussion about from scientists. Like I would go to, you know, conferences that weren't, weren't even necessarily like science conferences. Uh, I was at a um, cryptocurrency conference uh, mm-hmm. here in Dallas, and I, you know, was in a discussion with a computer scientist, and just for whatever reason, he steers the conversation into, you know, about how we need to learn how to become more competitive with China again, but and that, uh, you know, we, we're going to have to. Um, I can't remember the way that he put it, but we're going to have to like roll up our sleeves and do what they do and experiment on our own people. And I I, I was just like, 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 wow, where did that come from? Or, or, you know, like, you know, can you say that so easily? You know, like uh, it, it, but it, it confused and concerned me that I heard this not once, but numerous times in the three or four years. Uh, leading up to the pandemic. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, is somebody putting out messaging yeah. and giving people on message and right. just telling people go around and make this part of your stick, just, right. you know, cocktail conversations, just throw it out there. You know, we're not going to be competitive with China if we don't experiment on our own people.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's a really good point, Matthew. I, I, I think you're onto something for sure. And these kinds of um, get togethers are where you would uh, experiment with that. Right. Because you're in a group of people that are more or less aligned and you are, are steering it towards that. Um, and that's clearly what happened here too. I mean, over and over again, like we need public par- uh, private partnerships and this stuff is safe. And um, we, need, we need to go after the vaccine hesitant, you know, as, as, as uh, urgently uh, as possible. And, um, you know, nothing like what you just mentioned there at the, at the crypto conference, about ex- experimentation, but I understand what you're saying completely. You know, you, you make that part of the, um, of the narrative and suddenly it gets accepted without question. Um, if enough people believe it, you know?
0: Yeah. I also met a man, um, uh, Brian Bishop uh, in January at uh, at a dinner that I held in Austin, Texas, and he claimed to have helped fund one of the mRNA vaccines secretly uh, using Bitcoin. And uh, I know that he is a, a wealthy individual. He helped, um, uh, he co-founded a bank and uh, uh, he was one of the, on the board of Ledger X when it was sold to FTX, I believe, hmm. if I recall correctly. So, you know, obviously a very wealthy individual, been around Bitcoin for, you know, sounded like a decade. Um, but, you know, he, he was himself like a DIY, you know, genetic experimentalist. He was, uh, he, he was giving pitches a few years ago on developing designer babies. And, you know, like literally doing this from like, like he, he built a home lab. He was also funding, he was literally funding a Ukrainian bio lab to do his, his work. It was, it was very, very, you know, interesting conversation that I, you know, unfortunately it was only six minutes because I would have. You know, I had uh, many other guests to talk to and it would have been interesting to hear. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, the, the, there's so much that is weird about all of this. <laughs>
1: um, you yeah. know,
0: it, 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 it's hard to know, you know, how long the planning took place. But um, since you brought it up, just because you mentioned Peter Marks and, and talking about, you know, whether or not sterile immunity is something that they're going, going to work toward, uh, I feel almost obliged to pull up this graph. Uh, When I was working on the the military health database, I took Mm -hmm. the um, hospitalizations. Uh, Each each query has hospitalizations and it has ambulatory reports. Mm -hmm. And so I divided one by the other to get hospitalizations per case. And -hmm. they were going up through the the mandates in August. Right. That's when the military mandates were. Mm -hmm. And so the cases were getting more severe as -hmm. they vaccinated,
1: not less severe. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so. you know, this, this, uh, this, uh, jibes well with, uh, some of the work that, um, uh, you know, a guy down the street here, John Bodwin. have you looked at his work with the Massachusetts death? Oh Research? yeah. I know, I know John
0: pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he's been on rounding the earth.
1: Oh, has he? Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yes, that's right. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, uh, you know, the evidence is pretty clear what's really going on here. Um, but let me tell you about this, the, the next anecdote, which is very interesting, because um, the, I sat in, in a, in a roundtable discussion, and the topic was, um, how, do we, uh, how do we deal with vaccine hesitancy, right? And like, immediately, I, I saw exactly, you know, what the mission was for the next three days, because they, they're making that a priority um, to dealing with that. And um, before the discussion actually started, a woman sat next to me, and I find out that uh, she is um, Jennifer Margaret Harries. And Harries is the, um, the chief executive of the UKHSA. It's the United Kingdom Health Security Agency. And um, as your audience probably knows, they put out a lot of data. And I said, Oh my gosh, you're with the UK HSA. That's awesome. I I've been following your, your data for two years because we have crap data in this country and you're one of the few sources of like legitimate data out there. And thank you very much for your work. And she was, you know, she smiled and was very happy. Your energy was really good. And then I said, um, you know, I was very pleased that you reported on the, um, the increased incidence of COVID-19 in the vaccinated population in um, September, 2021, and you had age stratified it. And, um, you know, it wasn't an aberration in data because those numbers continued to grow. You had negative efficacy um, in all age groups within three or four months. And um, then you stopped reporting, why? And she looked at me and, you know, her whole, like everything changed. I'm not aware of that. I'm like, what, how could you not be (laughs) aware of that? You took over the entire agency in I think April of 2021, this report came out in September. I mean, clearly you had something to do with, you know, stopping that right there. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've looked at, at those reports, but they tried to um, explain away why this was happening with just, just bullshit arguments. Anyway, um, she clearly didn't want to talk about that anymore. And so then I asked her, um, (laughs) <laughs> about, oh my gosh, where did it go next? Oh, I said, um, uh, so what about um, uh, Tess Laurie? Um, you know, and, and, you know, she seems like a very reasonable um, do- doctor and researcher. You know, she's the head of the evidence-based uh, uh, medicine consultancy in England. And she wrote this open letter to the UK um, uh, MHRA Uh, which is the uh, equivalent of the FDA in England, in an open letter saying, look, we got to we got to stop the vaccines in in the United Kingdom, because the yellow card, the yellow card being the uh, vaccine adverse event reporting system of the UK was clearly showing a danger signal. Right. Um, And then she looked at me and she was like, you know, um, there are a lot of physicians in my country uh, that are gaining a lot of fame for their extreme positions. In fact, right now, there's a, there's a cardiologist that's doing the same thing. And I said, you mean uh, Dr. Malhotra? Is that who you're talking about? And she said, oh, you know who that is? I'm like, yeah. I mean, wasn't he famous before COVID? Yeah, one of the more famous
0: cardiologists
1: in the world. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> he's, he's gaining fame from from this? I mean, he was pretty, he was pretty well known before, right? Anyway, so um, I had another interaction with her later on, but that's when – The 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 thing started. It's like, okay, who has any suggestions? And and no one was saying anything. So I'm like, okay, I'll go first. And um, (laughs) you know, I said, look, you guys, let let's be real. Like, here's the thing, right? It's it's I'm not going there as a protester and trying to put it in their face. I'm trying to engage the con the conversation so that people can see the the hypocrisy and the uncertainty in what they're doing. So I said, um, look, the the you know you've already talked to people who you wanted to talk into getting it with um you know uh gift cards to target and uh limiting their travel restrictions right the people who who are resistant right now they don't give a shit about that you know they're listening to people who are qualified to speak on this topic who have very very good points why don't we bring in their spokespeople oh it and by the way in, in the last session you know who, who they believe is the the, the biggest um, heretic? It's not Peter McCullough or Robert Malone. They kept citing um, Wakefield as, you know, he's the one that's pushing this. It's like, dude, that guy is, you know, I mean, he's done amazing work. You know, I, I hope we've all seen the movie Vaxxed. Um And that whole issue, I'm not coming down one side or the other. I'm just saying that, that's been out there for like years. We're talking about a whole new like birth of of resistant people who know what they're talking about. Anyway, um, yeah, so I said, why don't we bring on some, you know, some of their spokespeople and dismantle their arguments in a public forum, right? Um, And immediately uh, another person got up and said, no, that would be, um, that's a terrible idea. In my research, if you give them equal footing, the public will think that Uh, they have a point. So we should never, ever (laughs) let them speak. And that woman um, who I encountered several times over the next few days, her name is Katie Atwell. And she is a behavioral scientist from the university of uh, Western Australia. And I I didn't know who she was at the time, but I got to know more about her uh, as the week progressed, because every time that I would somehow, we would always end up in the same Panel discussions, and every time I'd, I'd suggest this, she would immediately jump in and say, "No, that's a bad idea." Um, but what ha- here's what's interesting is that what afterwards, people would come up to me and say, "God, that was a really good idea. Why don't we do that?" And I said, "I know, and you know, we should do that. Let's see what happens, right?" Yeah. And, um,
0: in- inquiry is the basis of science.
1: Yes. Too bad we're not doing any science. Um, there was. Another person there, and this is another person that you may want to bring up, whose name is Christopher Graves. This guy um, is, uh, you know, sided with Atwell, and he claims to have done uh, this amazing research uh, that goes into how do you uh, target messaging based on a person's um, biases and predilections. And, you know, these uh, you know, he basically categorizes people in, in, um, I think 16 different ways based, you know, hyper religiosity, uh, anti-authoritarianism, you know, these kinds of classifications. And then, uh, they also, it it was a study of 3000 vaccine hesitant people. And then once he's done that, then they ask specific questions like, what is your issue with the vaccine? Exactly. Is it because, um, you think that you don't know what's in them, you don't trust the government, you know like all of these questions. And then they come up with a uh, targeted messaging, like for this kind of person who believes that, this is the kind of message you want to give to them. And the point here is, uh, so Matthew, can you bring up that that um, PDF file? Can you do that? Because it's really, really interesting. Um, this study uh, was funded by Merck of all people, obviously. And the reality here is, is that they are pathologizing the vaccine hesitant. You know, like it must be some sort of cognitive, yeah, that's him, Christopher Graves, you know, and here it is, Um, of course he's WEF, but more importantly, he, I think it says he's had a long, a life member of uh, the CFR. So this is someone who's been involved in, all of this stuff for decades and he um, was very affable. And uh, we spoke for about 30 minutes after this particular presentation and um, he was telling me about the research and um, he sent me this PDF file, I don't know if you can put it up, of uh, a, a large poster that um, summarizes the research he was paid to do by Merck about-
0: I, I, I guess I, I don't know where that PDF is um, if, if it was in your email to me I, I guess I missed it
1: okay it was an attachment because it was a PDF so it doesn't really matter the point is, is, is that it was it was a very very um, uh, uh, I would say sophisticated analysis and the point number one here is that we have to understand that they're approaching us with very sophisticated messaging you know that's how they're you know, they're saying like, this is, this is the problem. We have to be very targeted with how we approach and, and engage with the vaccine hesitant. And we need to take a lesson from that, you know, which is like, we have to like consolidate around, uh, you know, a, a clear message. And, and as you pointed out before the, the, the no virus um, group. Look, I, you know, far be, for me to say for sure, I know what's going on, but, You know, for someone to say uh, there is no virus that defeats the purpose, or at least my purpose, which is to keep this technology away from children and to, you know, and everybody else and and restore um, health freedom. And so it's a a detractor. Um, But the point here is that these guys have a tremendous amount of resources, and this is what they're doing. They're pathologizing our position, and they want to make this um, a uh, a disease. You know, a disease of the mind, of psychology, of, of cognition, and um, and treat it that way. Yes, there it is. I mean, it's it's a it's a really really interesting and look. Fifty one point nine percent of of the people he surveyed um, believe uh, have lost confidence. In, um, in vaccines throughout the pandemic. Um, and if you look at the numbers there, it, it's hard to see, but there are a lot of people independent of their ethnicity that feel like their confidence in the industry um, is down a lot.
0: Right. I, and, I think that that they overgambled on um, using ASH conformity mm-hmm. to... To create conformity, because the the way that that study worked, and this is how why I think that you, you can bring in somebody like Christopher Graves who goes through like psych profiling to figure out how it is to apply this to people. Um, there were a number of versions of the Ash conformity experiment, but after the original experiment, uh, you know, uh, Ash had his um, you know researchers survey every single person to find out why did you go with the wrong answer, mm-hmm. right? And and there were different answers given. Right. Some people said uh, they were going along to avoid social punishment. In so many words, some people were going along to accrue social acceptance. Mm. So, you know, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. And then there was a third crowd. And this is, you know, interesting, concerning. um, But there was a third crowd. It was not a majority or anything. You know, it was a minority crowd, but um, there was actual uh, distortion of perception. Hmm. Right. Other people saying this line is longer than that line right. or, or, or this line matches, uh, you know, the one that they were supposed to match it to um, mm-hmm. other people, literally, you know, whatever it was, they were disoriented by the actions of these other people. I didn't know that. Now, versions of the ash conformity experiment have involved uh, confidants who were, you know, you put a confidant in a white coat and suddenly conformity goes up. Yeah, it goes up substantially. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and my bet is that uh, the types of people who play these games have studied further versions of these conformity <laughs> studies and Absolutely. they know what to do. But uh, I think that they that they and, and this is something I actually I, I told my wife this uh, back in 2020 when I first started thinking that this was all an Ash conformity experiment. I said, what's going to happen is people are going to lose trust in the icon that you were using. Right. Because that's the only thing that they can do is blame it on the confidant. So, what's happening is these are parasocial relationships that are being used. Right. You put up a Trump, you put up a Fauci, and you know how it is that people relate to these two figures. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, instead of, um, I, I think of them as like Dunbar slots. You know, you have your Dunbar number, your 150 people that you, that you know, or, do you know this concept? No um you know robin dunbar uh i I guess he was a anthropologist or sociologist he said um you know it seems to be the larger the primate brain the larger the group that they hang out in you know um eight cotton monkeys 60 baboons you know 150 to 300 humans 150 became known as dunbar's number and i think that it was not just the number like in terms of our brains can hold Uh, capacity for 150 social relationships where you truly know people, you know, their, their movements, you, you would, you couldn't really be deceived by them very easily, very often. Um, Mm -hmm. At least the vast majority of those relationships. Right. Mm -hmm. And and there wouldn't be much attempt to because you're all in it together. You really are. You're a tribe. Right. I think that um, that a lot of modern uh, propaganda has focused around taking over not just a member of the tribe, but like a specific slot, right? TV comes in and people see Biden, Trump, Reagan, whoever, and, you know, Clinton, and they think chief, or they might even think chief of the other tribe, right? Mm-hmm. Like those are the people that we have to watch for, you know, if they come in our territory, we make war, right? So, uh, and and I think that probably there is sort of, a, there's probably a handful of Slots that are, you know, designated, they have a specific utility in your brain, family member might be one, but, you know, medicine man, you know, um, the scientist, uh, you know, that that person in the group that that sort of has the most curiosity and figures things out or, or something, you know, the engineer, if you show if you show people images on TV of that, and they don't have that relationship close to them enough that, you know, that it can't be replaced easily, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, Anthony Fauci, these become in people's heads, archetypes. Yes. And suddenly these archetypes get used as the confidants in in these ash conformity experiments. And the only thing, the only possible way people can can, uh, you know, rationalize is to give up the archetype, either give up the archetype entirely or give up the person as a representation, of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and who knows, like, we, we may not know which of those things is going to happen. And that's actually its own sort of concerning facet of the whole experience, right? Are mm-hmm. people going to reject science? Will we see a mass rejection of science? You know, are, are people going to be discerning enough? I think the answer is no, but I, it, are people going to be discerning enough to distinguish between science and the institutions that have been created to make science into an industry?
1: Yeah, that's and, a really yeah. So, Matthew, do you think that um, that these archetypes uh, have been created? In other words, um, do you think that someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson um, has been a project of, you know, Mr. Global, I, whatever. I,
0: I've actually wondered, uh, you know, almost a decade ago, I actually said something like this on my Facebook. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had some people snap back at me over it. But, um, you know, I said like this guy almost looks like a cartoon like he's a caricature of of what he is you know it it almost feels like this is like yet another type of uh intelligence operation yeah i I think the odds are pretty high Uh, and when when i say high i mean you know in my mind i'd I'd put you know wide interval 20 to 90 Mm percent but i'd call that high you know anything above one is probably high
1: (laughs) right yeah I, i i would agree with you i you know anything is possible, and given what was you know divulged in just this these few days in terms of like how 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 much uh, money they're willing to spend in looking at this more closely, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all um, that this is all been engineered. And and there was another there was another um, small group session um, where this guy from Hopkins, uh, whose name is something Solomon Salmon, he presented the stuff that they're doing. And um, he created a website and a whole platform called Let's Talk Shots. And um, like you pointed out there, uh, some people need to hear the message from their pastor. Some people need to hear it from the doctor. Some people need to hear it uh, from a doctor who is of the same cultural background. Um, And that's what they're doing. You know, they're they're not, you know, they're not um, compromising on uh, or, or cutting any corners. They're, they're after everybody. And, you know, even when I said, look, they admit that there's a problem because, you know, what is it? 79% of people have gotten one shot in this country and 60 have or got the primary series, but only 15% have taken the bivalent booster. And um, and all they say is like, oh, you know, the reason why is that the perceived threat is much lower. And that's why they're not waiting in line and the right, right. I mean, I hope we all understand that the pathogenicity of this, whatever strains are out there right now is, is much different than it was three years ago, but nowhere did they ever acknowledge the fact that, um, people don't trust anyone anymore. Um, it, and that there are injuries in, in any case. So going back to graves here, this is what I wanted to say is that I'm talking to him outside of the, um, Outside the hall, about his research, and he's telling me all of these things uh, about uh, what they're doing. And I said, "So how would you, um, how would you talk to a physician who went back to the trial data and saw that there were more mortality in the in the in the therapy group than the placebo group? Right? W- what's the proper messaging for that person?" And he's like, "Oh, those are the." Uh, you, like the the cognitive fixated people the, the, those are the ones that have a problem with uncertainty you know they won't move and i'm like okay <laughs> that's the problem is that what it is? that's the problem i see um so you know and i said have you have you looked at the data and he said no no i haven't looked at the data you know it was almost like who cares about the data you know that's not my problem
0: Right he, He's looking to pathologize without even understanding whether or not those people are making accurate observations.
1: Yes that's yes. amazing.
0: that that's really amazing. That's where you know it's somebody's job. you know they're told to hunt for a pathology.
1: Yep yes, that's that's what they're doing. Um, wow. and this, the same thing the same thing occurred in the next so I, I don't really expect someone like Christopher Graves to have looked at the data, but I had nearly the same conversation with an epidemiologist from, um, oh boy, she was also from Hopkins. And again, it was another session with this woman, Katie Atwell, who, you know, shot down my my idea immediately. Um, but then this other person came up to me afterwards. And once again, I was encouraged because she was like, you know, Dr. Seti, I, I think your questions were really good. And um, we need to work more on education of uh, our physicians so that they you know, understand, um, what's really going on. Right. Um, that's the way through we need education, 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 you know, <clears throat> something that you're into. And, um, yeah, so that's Katie Atwell at the, so this other person whose name I, escapes me right now, but she had a, an extensive background in, um, Africa. Anyway, she comes up to me and, and says, yeah, we need to, um, we need to look at, uh, educating our, our, uh, are uh, uh, primary care physicians. And so I said, um, look, the, um, the, the, the people in my community, um, they come to me and, and, I, and I quoted the same thing. It's like all cause mortality, six month interim results from Pfizer, greater in the therapy group. They come to me and I don't know what to say to that. What do you think? And she looks at me, and she goes, is that, is that a new study that just came out? And I said these are the original trial results like you don't know that like, how is that even possible that you don't even understand that and 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 to her credit she was like why well, I, I didn't know i'm I'll, I'll look into it so the point here is that there are clearly people at the very very top that that know what they're pushing is not good but then you have all of these you know middle people you know these academics who just you know are stuck in herd mentality and groupthink who just listen to it and assume that they've got it right and i could understand how that was happening because you know one of the one of the the big things that i observed was people there are unwilling to second guess their position because they've got all the trophies, they've got all the toys, they've got all the money. Like why would the world be rewarding them, you know, so uh, bountifully if they had it wrong, right? Um, so it, it was- And their
0: education was more about being mimetic than about, um, you know, learning how to find all the answers themselves because mm-hmm. there's so much information, you know, whether you're a physician or a scientist, the amount, the, the information pool, I guess people say things like, you know information doubles every year and a half or I don't know, It's probably like seventeen days at this point, right? It's something yeah. like it, it, it's all insane, right? Um, <clears throat> I mean, in, you know when I went to school, uh, it, it college classes were already looking tedious to me just on the level of, you know, gosh, I have to go through this much information and I, I have no idea what I'm even going to learn in terms of processes or procedures. Mm -hmm. and and because of that i didn't like a lot of the the college classes but i you know i could i could see the the pre-med students you know working you know 80 hours a week and you know memorizing stuff on note cards and i just thought i just thought you know like this is like it just feels like the wrong thing but I, i assumed that medical school and beyond that it got better from there. And then, of course, I've had so many friends go to medical school that I know that's not that's not true, <laughs> that, that it's just it's constant pressure and that, um, you know, pe- people release that pressure by beginning to look around and behaving like the flock around them. Yep, because they assume that there are at least some members of the flock who are putting in all of the work to figure out how it all works. Correct. And and they don't know that that they could all be led along. You know, um, you it a few people with I don't know an ash conformity experiment, mm-hmm. or you know a little bit of pressure and control, and suddenly you have the flock moving in one direction together. Or it could be entirely natural, or sort of natural process of incentives. You know, the incentives are all wrong, and they've all been poisoned for so many years, intentionally or otherwise, mm-hmm. uh, and. You know i i do think that there is a certain amount of intent to it because when you have industries that well we, we know rockefeller's history i mean he you know it, he was very clearly poisoning uh you know uh, putting putting money in all the the medical schools saying no strings attached and then coming back later and saying oh but we'd like a board member just to make sure that it's spent well right mm-hmm. come back a second time and and up the 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 stakes a little bit each time um, knowing that they may have you know the, these people who didn't have nice salaries probably misspent a little of that money. <laughs> um, so it, it uh, you know, the, the memetic behavior and not, not letting people relax and think creatively while climbing up this ladder where they may even be uh, building debt to get there. It's a trap. It's a terrible trap.
1: It, it is. It, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, you said it really well and explained it. Um, you know, my personal experience in medical school was much different than most of my colleagues. Um, you know, I, I had a background outside of medicine first, and um, and it, it became very clear to me that th- there was a lot of what you just described there um, happening right there in medical education. Um, and, you know, most of my uh, classmates were six or seven years younger than I was, and they had never been out there, you know, doing like real, you know, computational stuff. Um, and the idea that they could actually uh, critique the methodology of a study uh, it was preposterous, they, they they can't. And look, I, I'm not trying to just slam all physicians of, of, of being, um, uh, you know, victims of groupthink. Doctors are much better at challenging ideas coming from their own specialty um, reading literature that has to do with their own field, um, and pushing back when they feel like, you know, my own experience is is different. So I I don't really believe the study, but when it comes to like the pandemic, for example, like, you know, as an anesthesiologist, I, I never listened to the CDC. I didn't even know, you know, really what the CDC was to be honest with you until this happened. And suddenly, uh, you know, a huge swath of physicians, the vast majority who don't deal with infectious diseases and epidemiology, what are they gonna do when the CDC says that that's, this is what, what the science is? They're not gonna be able to push back on it. Um, and I'm not trying to make excuses for physicians. I know there's a lot of anger on our side um, you know, that, that want to uh, uh, criminalize uh, every single physician or the entire uh, field. But um, I, I think it's more important to understand that these people are just misinformed. At least that's been my yeah. experience. Um, and this is should be hopeful to us, right? Because you're not gonna talk a psychopath into doing the right thing, but you can teach someone who is misinformed. And, you know, ultimately the, the collision of uh, truth and this fake narrative, I think is going to occur in physicians offices, you know, and we have to be smarter about how we use those five or six minutes when you have a doctor who is trained to listen to you, you know, answer your questions. We have to ask the right questions. You know, we don't wanna lecture to your your doctor and say, oh, you don't know what you're doing and I would never get that shot and all this stuff. But like ask them, like, have you read the study? Or, you know, please tell me, you know, why, um, if they're so safe, why can't I sue the the vaccine manufacturer? Like, what's a good reason for that? I mean, these are basic questions and we, we have to understand that you're not going to convert a physician in one conversation, right? you just want to, you just want to, you know, push the door open a little bit. So it remains cracked so that the next person that comes in who asks the next question will, you know, push it open a little more. This is going to, you know, sadly, you know, and, and, not- and
0: are there bridges that can be unburned, right? Like people say you can't unburn a bridge, but sometimes, sometimes the burning is an illusion, right? If, mm-hmm. if, if, the if there is a lot of, um, you know, controlled, uh, you know, Christopher Gra- uh, Graves, psychological, you know, experimentation type stuff, nudge units, all of that, maybe there are bridges that aren't truly burned. And, yeah. and maybe, maybe what you can do is invite, um, you know, have an amnesty party, you know, um, mm. call it, call it a uh, patient physician jubilee <laughs> or something like that. Uh-huh. And, and, and you know, I, I, I oh, goodness, I, I'm forgetting the doctor's name, um, but the, the one who made the apology. Um, right. In the Atlantic? Um, no, 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 no. Um, that was uh, Emily Oster. That was an economist. Uh, oh, I'm thinking think right. there was a doctor. And I've written about both these stories right? and I've compared the apologies. Right. Like to yeah. me, to me, that's important. Right. If somebody says, I'm sorry, like that's not nearly as meaningful to me as what I see in their Demeanor, character, actions, right? Like th- those are the things that that make the apology worth something, right? So, but there was a, a doctor. Um, he he's an RTE reader. Uh, you know, I, I there was some, I, I guess something going on in Florida. I think, and there were panels that were up. Uh, maybe Lapido was there. I think Dr. Malone was there. Uh, my friend David Weissman was on one of the TVs in the background. It was one of those with all the TVs going. You know. The, all kinds of people and but they they showed the doctor and the doctor said you know uh look i i'm sorry you know i I just want to say that because a lot of the things that i thought were true you know i i've i've determined now are wrong and i can't remember exactly what he was referring to whether it was public health measures like you know masking and you know uh, quarantining and and all this stuff or if it was um more specific to the medicines but one way or another i felt like like oh that's great that was awesome so it like you know, it, it felt like this is somebody who crossed lines in a sense, and I don't even want to think of it as lines. Just, just said, you know what? I, I'm, I'm questioning things, and I'm sorry that I wasn't before, but my conclusions have steered since I started questioning. To, to have something like, you know, uh, could, could we do something like a date? You know, like, yeah, uh, July thirty first, twenty twenty three. You know, you know physician patient jubilee. Or something like that, and invite physicians to question, you know, anything between now and then, and then to sit down with their patients, it's almost like a town hall meeting, because mm-hmm. this is that serious, right? This is that serious because yeah. people are talking about like loss of loss of trust of the public health health system, um, you know, of their doctors, things like that. Um, you know, I, I personally changed doctors myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people who did. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, what, where do we go from here? You know, like you said, uh, there there are more and more people. It, it's, it's not just lower perceived threat. Um, no, yeah. Absolutely. You know, you're right. You know, people like I don't know. I, I hear discussions all the time.
1: Well, look, l- l- you know, let's let's talk about all the positive things that are happening right now. First of all, we have to understand that, you know, they're going to lose by attrition. Um, it's inevitable. There's like, like how many, how many, you know, people are out there saying, well, you know, I, I, I resisted the, the, the vaccine for three years, but now you've converted me, I'm going to go get jabbed. I mean, like that's not going to happen, right? Everyone's going to come over to our side. Eventually we have to be able to hasten it, um, in a way so that we can still remain friends. Honestly, that that's really an important part of this. Um, you know, you talked about, uh, um, uh, forums. And um, get-togethers. I mean, a lot of this is, is going to happen. Hopefully, you know, we have Bobby Kennedy running for president. I mean, this is going to put this issue right up there. You know, obviously, lots of media is is not going to cover it, but there are going to be uh, you know town halls about this, and um, those things are going to are going to happen. And obviously, he can't do it all himself. Like all of us have to be representatives of that position that are willing to speak up in in those kinds of uh, formats. Um, just the other
0: our own positions, you know, they don't have to all be the same, but just, you know, so long as we're getting back to, you know, questioning, you know, medicine and science and, and, and you know, thinking and, and not just following the flock.
1: hmm You know, just the other day I was in my own, uh, one of the facilities I work at and, um, they had just removed the requirements for people to be COVID-19 tested before coming in for an elective procedure. And um, and I asked, like, there was a group of three nurses that didn't have anything to do. And I said, so what do you think about this? Do you feel safe that we're not testing anymore? And they're like, no, I think we're done. I, I don't really, you know, believe in the testing. And we're still wearing masks. Like you can't, you walk around the hospital, doesn't matter if they're with patients or not, you have to wear a mask, you know? And I said, so what do you think about this, this mask thing? Do you think we should, can take off our masks now? Do you guys feel safe? And they said, yeah, you know, I wish we would drop the masks. Um, and then I said, so what do you think about, you know, getting a booster? Are, are you still behind that? And they're like, I, I don't really know about that because I, I've heard that, um, you know, one of my friends uh, had a really bad reaction and I didn't feel good afterwards. And and then I said, uh, do you understand that, you know, there's probably, you um, i don't know what is it now 1.5 million uh, reports in vares and 37,000 deaths and the three of them like just looked up and said what's vares and i said well it's the vaccine adverse event reporting system and immediately you know without even prompting one of them goes up to a computer and looks it up and they start looking at the reports and they're like oh my god you guys come here look at this and as soon as they saw it like you know on the internet which means it's true they um, suddenly it just confirmed all of these suspicions that they had had. It's like, oh my God, that, that person was actually, it was a vaccine injury. I can't believe this is what's going on. So I, I'm just saying that the tide is turning. And, you know, my experience at, at this Congress uh, confirmed that. People were coming up to me and saying, yeah, that's a good point, And we don't know enough about this. Um, and the very, very last question of the symposium is um, with, with Gregory Poland um, moderating. Um, they were talking about um, uh, oh um, markers for vaccine durability. You know they have identified the, the problem is like people don't want to get another shot every three months. How can we make these vaccines, or at least how do we have a marker for whether or not it's going to last for more than a few months? And you know there's there's some science, basic science that was being thrown around and ideas. And then one of the presenters said. You know, we found something very interesting um, in the early days of the pandemic, in 2020 before the vaccine, uh, young infants who got COVID, we, we, we uh, follow them for two or three years, they still have remarkably robust immunity. You know, infants, um, maybe there's a clue, maybe there's a clue in there that can help us, you know, figure out a marker for this. And um, my colleague, uh, Elizabeth Mumper, like saw the opportunity and said, okay, look, And she asked the very last question of the entire week. Uh, um, And she said, "Um, can you please explain to me um, why I should be advocating a six month old getting the vaccine if you are now telling me that if they get COVID, they're gonna be protected. Your vaccines don't work. We have no idea what the long-term effects of lipid nanoparticles are in these babies. Um, and the survivability is, you know, 99.9997%. Convince me. I mean, that's exactly what she said. And then the presenter said, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't have an answer to that. And then, and then she said, anybody else up there want to, you know, tackle the question? And then someone said, oh, well, you know, so doctor, look, you're, you're, you've got this misconception that it's, it's better to get COVID than the vaccine. Um, and you don't know what the long-term side effects of COVID are. And, you know, and then Poland like ended the conversation right there. And it's like, holy cow, you you missed the whole point. You don't, like we know that, you know, natural immunity is good, the vaccine wanes, the survivability is excellent, and we have no idea about the long-term effects of of the vaccine, yet your counter argument is, well, we don't know what the long-term effects of COVID are either. How does that like, you know, justify inoculating babies? And once again, people came up to her and said, "Wow, that's a really good question." I, I don't think he answered the question, and we're like, "Yeah, he didn't."
0: Yeah, and people need, and people should should stop and, and think. Also, wait a minute. One of these forms of immunity lasts for one two decades. You know, mm-hmm. we, we know that the people who had the original SARS had you know uh, immunity like seventeen years later, right? And right? Probably still do, right? It's probably twenty it's just, years on why is it that a vaccination seems to wane after 4 months when people start uh, asking that question i think that's when they're going to understand the whole 14 days miscategorization yeah and then they're going to realize that there was never any efficacy
1: right Which, uh, that, that,
0: that's my opinion that's my strong belief i, I think that that it, you know it's right there in the numbers that if you flip those people to the vaccinated pool mm-hmm. that suddenly you you have zero or Probably negative efficacy from the start. It's not waning efficacy. It's waning bias. It's waning miscategorization. You know, um, she, I, I think you're it. right, Matthew.
1: I, I, absolutely. I've, I've read a lot of your uh, stack articles on that. I i hear, I see exactly what you're saying. Um, but again, you know, you have to start someplace with these people. You know, you, you start off saying that there is no efficacy. You know, healthy user bias and all this stuff. They're they're not going to hear it. You know, you start someplace where they're they feel confident and you lead them another place with those kinds of things. Here's something interesting. I know we got to wind down soon, but um, I went to another presentation um, by a researcher who was talking about um, lipid nanoparticles and delivery systems of these medicines. And she was saying that um, what they found was the design of the LNP um, is very important because you can make it um uh what's the word she used you you can make it so that it acts as an adjuvant right it, it, it incites right. an inflammatory response right and the point here is that that's the kind of lnp you want when you're delivering a vaccine that is not what you want when you're delivering a chemotherapeutic agent right because you don't want the inflammation you just want the drug to get there and um so anyway uh here's the thing, right? So she gives her presentation and I talked to her. I said, look, can you, do you have any information about um, how you can modulate the LNP so that you can direct where it ends up in the body? And she said, oh, it always gets taken up by your lymphatic tissues through the spleen and liver. That's where it goes. And I said, well, what about the brain? Does it go there? And she said, yes, it, uh, that's true. It does go there. And I said, <laughs> um, you know, does it, does it, does it like, you know, can you make sure that doesn't happen? And um, what do you know about that? And she said, well, we have no idea, but that's a really important topic of uh, our, our research. And, and that's sort of like put it all together for me. It's like, you know, you kn- clearly the LNPs that were used in these formulations were, um, uh, you know, immunogenic or in- inflammatory. They, they use, of course they did that, right? That's how they get the response. We know that it goes to the brain, and we've got, you know, you know, scores, if not thousands of neurological. Uh, so she intervals. wasn't gonna
0: say it if you, would, if you didn't bring it up.
1: No, she didn't say that at all. Yeah, I had to bring it up and I, you know, she, it was one of those presentations where, you know, she 20 minutes long, 30 slides full of data. Like, I, I don't even know what she's saying, but you know, when she talked about that, I was like, okay, that's my question. So, so here we have it, right? You, you, you have, you have the mechanism of inflammation you know that it goes across the blood brain barrier and you have you know the chairman of the, of the entire symposium with you know um some sort of neurologic uh, issue um uh, with the acoustic nerve or whatever is causing the stuff like wh- how much more do you need honestly but you have to ask the probing questions but this was just a big show honestly it was like you know um it was a mind game um, but most of the people there didn't know about all of these things, uh, but they're open to hearing it. Interesting.
0: Um, I, I'm going to think on this a little bit because uh, I, I'm so glad to hear your report on all of this, because it, it it it's an update for me as to how it is we might move forward, um, possibly how I might be able to make my time more valuable also. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, gosh, you know, when, it, when I hear this, I think, um, like, this is something that should go on, like, with every event, perhaps, right? Like, um, and, and, and uh, you had mentioned an idea to me, and maybe we'll talk about it uh, after the show. Um, uh, maybe, maybe revisit or, or discuss that idea. I think I have a better sense of, of, uh, of your intention with that. I have a better sense of, of what you brought up. But um, any, any other thoughts? Uh, gosh, you know. Where where does this leave us? Um, it, actually, you know, maybe maybe I want to do this, um, uh, Liam. Actually, uh, when I brought up the idea of something like a, um, you know, doctor patient jubilee, mm-hmm. I do want to say this. Um, I think that there are different degrees of, you know, probably criminal activity that have taken place. Uh, but it is I, I I think that we have to be uh, as discerning as possible as to where we place the blame, especially if, uh, you know, the amount of pressure that was put on physicians, you know, there, there were some who seemed almost gleeful about the entire process and procedure, yeah. but some who probably just went along to get along, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that, that we, we're gonna have to be discerning in our judgment, but there are times when, I think the game theory suggests that you find a way to walk away from the situation by by I don't know separating the way that you deal with with one group of people from the other. You yep. know, there there's certain people that should probably be held to account if possible under all circumstances. But yes. there are people there are people who just want to be Americans, you know, who just want to um, participate in their noble profession. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and you know, I, there was a Substack this morning. I can't remember who wrote it, uh, but who said, look, the doctors are traumatized.
1: That was mine. I think it was. Oh, oh that was you. OK. Yeah.
0: OK. Um, and and I, I maybe I was uh, catching up on on your articles. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I think, that, yeah, you,
1: really good Substack piece, by the way.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head, though. that observation uh you know we we have to consider that this is something that is so unique that was done to all of us at once yeah and find a way to let those who who you know those people who want to untangle like like i said if we pick the date like july 31st and said who's willing to come to the room and have a conversation if not tell us you're you're on our side Hmm. Right, like it, either one of those is a step of good faith, yes, at the very least. Right, those are the people that I think you know you can embrace again.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, 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 I'm encouraged. and I, I like what you're saying here. So you're suggesting that we, um, spread the spread the word and about and yeah, you know, I'm, I'm
0: throwing it out there. You know, it was just an idea that sprang into my head because we were talking. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, and and I think none of us none of us know what to think, right? I mean, we, we, it's been so crazy.
1: Well, look, you brought up two really good points. The first is those guys who are managing the narrative, you know, the pro-vaccine narrative. They don't want dialogue, so the idea of dialogue is automatically good, right? We have to assume that that's that's probably going to work, and they know it's going to work. That's why they don't want that. Um, and the other point you made that I want to chime in on, oh, wait slips my mind now. Oh, well, mm, I should have went with that one first. Oh, well. What did you just say? Uh, um,
0: <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> well, uh, we, we, we can, we can pick it back up. Right. Um, we're, we're talking. So, um, so all good. Well, thanks for coming and sharing this experience with us. I think that's, this is so uniquely valuable and probably,
1: Go ahead. I, up with it. Um, I think that when we our prize is to punish the the wrongdoers, um, we lose a lot of uh, momentum and ability to actually change things. Because you know, eventually, hopefully, people will be brought to task, the ones who deserve to be punished. But we have to stop this, and you know, that's the first goal: is to like stop doing this. As opposed to, we need to punish the people who are doing this. We have to stop it first, and that should be our priority. Once we stop it and and cease the damage, then um, we can start uh, picking up the pieces and find out, you know, who who are really the the, uh, the malevolent ones behind this. Um, and you know, look, I'm not into punishing people. I that someone somebody else can do that. I'm not saying that they don't deserve some sort of uh, retribution, but. You know that's not my interest. I'm, my interest is to stop this first.
0: Yeah, first and foremost. Yeah, um, and and you know to to a large extent the system is is the people in many ways. And if, you know, if we make the system better, we make uh, people better. Uh, you know, not not exactly, but in a sense, you know, the incentives determine uh, it at least the flow of the outcome.
1: Precisely. Right. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Madhava, And uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, <laughs> um, learn something every time. Um, I'm looking at uh, any questions from the audience before we uh, uh, cut down. We still got we, we've got a few dozen watchers here. We may have uh, a few dozen between the different channels.
1: What's that? Is said a few dozen? That's good. <laughs>
0: um, well, we'll go ahead and cut here. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, everybody, um, go check out um, um, Madaba's uh, uh, sub stack is uh, fairly new. Um, it, it, and it's called uh, an insult to intuition. Go check that out. Uh, you, you've got to look through this from the belly of the beast article. I mean, this is, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of it here, but uh, th- he's got a lot of more information there. Yep. So yeah. thanks, everybody. And we will see you again soon. We'll see you tomorrow. Uh, uh, Liam and I are going to be hosting uh, JJ Cooey, and we hope you join us in.